It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. One way you can get more advice from our team daily is to subscribe to our free newsletter. Go to clark.com slash newsletter. Today I have some news in the car world for you and a very important warning if you're in the market for a used car now or in the next six months. And after I answer some of your questions, I want to address the fears around the stock market and the wide swings we've been experiencing over the last couple of weeks. Is it time for you to worry? I'm going to let you know my opinion. So the storms that we have had in the last six weeks are going to lead to significant danger to use vehicle buyers in the next six months. Because what we're going to have from Hurricane Ida and other flooding events is we're going to have a lot of vehicles that are ruined, flood damage vehicles, that will be cleaned up. The titles will go through a process known as title washing, where states that have uh, not very secure title processes, those salvaged titles from a vehicle being flooded will be washed by using a state of convenience, and suddenly it'll look like nothing ever happened to that vehicle. And you then in turn buy a vehicle that is a disaster. Let me tell you, vehicles that have been flood damaged really kind of rot through and through. And you have something that may turn out to be unsafe in addition to being unreliable. And this is going to be a terrible problem because so many vehicles were lost to flooding from Louisiana all the way up through the Northeast. So what do you do? How would you even know that a car you're looking to buy has been a flood-damaged car? Well, you can't rely on what you're told by the salesperson or whoever you're buying it from or wherever you're buying. What you need to do is you need to have a vehicle inspected by an independent mechanic of your choosing. Mechanics know telltale signs of what a vehicle would look like having been through a flood. And you will avoid trouble. You know, some of these vehicles are going to be priced below normal market price. And your budget's really being pinched with the run-up in used vehicle prices. And so you may want to look the other way and ignore the problem. But you're buying the problem, you own it, and you're stuck with it. So that's why it's very, very important that you have, in normal times, I always say, get a used vehicle inspected by a mechanic of your choosing. But now it is much more important that you do so because the aftermath of the floods. So I want to tell you, we're moving into a transition in the U.S. vehicle market and we're going to gradually move from gasoline-powered vehicles to electric. Traditional automakers are converting their fleets vehicle by vehicle to electric. 
And there will be, for the first time really and forever, there will be new brands available in the marketplace. We know about Tesla. It's going to be Rivian, uh, Lucid maybe. Who knows how many there are going to be. They will be selling vehicles, and they're almost certainly going to want to try to sell direct to you rather than through traditional dealers. Traditional dealers have worked hard. They're really powerful in state legislatures to get laws passed that make it illegal for you to buy a vehicle that was not sold through a franchise dealer of a manufacturer. Tesla established itself and has never had franchise dealers because Elon Musk's thing was that traditional dealers would never have the product knowledge and would never want to sell the vehicle. And Tesla wanted people to be able to buy instantly online. I'll tell you something crazy, even if you're not interested in one, to show you how simple buying a vehicle could be, you go to tesla.com and you pick out a model you'd supposedly be interested in. You build the model with the options and you know the price all within three minutes. There's no games, no gimmicks. No, I'm going to have to go talk to my manager. None of that stuff. It's clean, simple, and they build the vehicle to your specs and deliver it to you. Well, again, traditional automakers are terrified as are their dealer networks. So you've got these state laws. So Tesla is doing something that has the dealer groups furious. They're opening a store on tribal land where the laws of the Indian tribe, Native American tribe, control not the laws that are restrictive on commerce that a state may have passed. So Tesla's getting ready to do that. I think the first state's New Mexico. And they will do this in state after state where they'll make a deal with the tribal council and establish a Tesla dealer, and then they'll be able to sell in that state. And you will see this from the other players as well. And the reality is none of us should be guaranteed a monopoly on the sale of a product. And that's what we have in a bunch of states right now on the sale of vehicles. And that's just flat out wrong. That's interfering in the free market. And the free market should decide how and where you buy and how you buy. And dealers have not helped themselves with this because so many still continue to play the games. And I have a friend who did an online purchase of a vehicle from a traditional dealer and got to the dealer to buy the vehicle that he'd already done the purchase, he thought, online. And they handed him a price sheet for $3,400 more than he had made a deal online with the dealer. So they were using that just as a lure to get him there and then cheat him. And so old habits do die hard. We need the marketplace to create the competition to change how that game plays out. All right, you ready for some questions? I am. This is from Beatriz in Arizona. My boyfriend signed up to be a handyman through an app. 
He paid a membership fee to start. The rep told him that he would only be charged for leads that he accepted and that he could pause the account at any time to stop the leads. The very next day, he started getting leads and accepted a few to start working. However, he kept getting more leads than he could handle, and they charged him for every lead they sent. He was told he could pause his account, but they still continued to send leads and charge for every one of them. He called them about all the charges, and they told him he owed $350 more. I canceled the credit card right away so they could stop charging the fees, and in a matter of two weeks, they charged $970. What recourse do we have? Beatrice, let me tell you the scoop with this. This is a lead generation service for people doing home repairs and home contracting. And the salespeople, I I wasn't there. I don't know what the salesperson told your boyfriend. But the reality is what someone tells you doesn't matter. It's only what the contract calls for. And the contract for this service, when you're getting lead generations from them, what it says is that you continue to pay for leads until you restrict how many they're sending you or how much money. So they call it a spend target. And you have to tell them in writing that you want only to spend X number of dollars. Otherwise, if you don't put in limitations, they're going to clobber your wallet over and over and over again. Now, let me tell you something in particular that upsets me about this service. They pretend that they have vetted the businesses, the individual contractors, that they are giving the leads to. They advertise that they're doing so. And as best I can tell, they don't do that at all. They pretend that's what they do, but all they're after is charging you money as a contractor for the leads. And the more you'll pay them, the more they'll send you. But they don't know anything about the quality of the work of your boyfriend or anything like that. And your boyfriend may be great at what he does, but all they're about is getting in his wallet for as much money as they can. So this one is ugly at both ends of the transaction, from the consumer looking for a contractor to hire and for the contractors themselves. The reality is if the salesperson did not explain it accurately at all, that you could just tell them when not to or when to, then they've kind of got you over a barrel because the terms of service that your boyfriend signed up for say exactly this, that they just keep sending them to you till you online shut the referrals off. All right, this is from Taylor in California. Any advice for selling commercial real estate? My family inherited two properties that are turning out to be more headache than they're worth. They're in a town a few hours from where we live, and we have no business holding on to them. I'm just looking for a jumping off point to start the process. Websites or experts you trust since I trust your opinion. Taylor, it's time for you to take a trip. You need to go to the town a few hours away where the properties are located, and you need to hunt down a commercial 
real estate agent. And you're going to need that commercial broker to sell the property. You're not going to be able to do it yourself, particularly with it being a few hours away. You're going to need a professional. And the commissions will be negotiable that you pay. It would be common, though, that you may pay a commission somewhere in the range of 10% on a commercial property. It just varies by marketplace. But you've got to go there, and if you look around, you'll see the names that are constantly listed on commercial properties. You'll be able to have a list of people you start calling and go to meet with them while you're there and figure out who seems like the person you're most comfortable with having the listing or selling the property. Be careful about, Taylor, how long you sign an agreement for the listing so that you don't want to be in a position where you sign a listing for an extremely long period of time and you find you're dissatisfied with them and you're stuck with them for that long, long period of time. And good luck moving the property. You know, depending on where the property is in California, it may be a slow process selling the properties or they may be desirable. You just don't know till you go see what's going on in that market. And this is from Raina in Tennessee. I'm interested in your thoughts on opening a UTMA for my minor children, ages 6, 8, and 2, less than 2. I'm not interested in a 529 as I don't believe college is the only way, and a 529 from my understanding is quite limiting. I'd love the money to be accessible for a down payment on a home, schooling, etc. Custodianship in my state currently ends by age 25. My fear is having to hand over control of a possibly decent chunk of change to a 25-year-old who may not be mature enough to make financially sound decisions. It also appears the tax rate for UTMAs is quite high. Is there a better way to help save for my children's future that isn't only designated for higher education? So I'm gathering, based on what you said about the tax rates on an UTMA or an UGMA, that you are a pretty high-income earner. So I know that's going to be weird, but... The 529 account may solve a world of issues. If one of these kids goes to college, the 8-year-old, the 6-year-old, or the uh, 2-year-old, if they go to college, you have money in a 529 account that will have grown for uh, 10 to nearly 20 years tax-free and be spent tax-free. If they don't go to college, and you want to wait till you feel they're mature enough to give them access to their funds, you can keep it in there. You're the owner of the account, Rena, and they don't have access to it. So then if they don't go to college and you decide, you know, at 28, this child really seems to have it together, I'm going to give them the money. They will have to pay ordinary tax on the gain plus a 10% penalty. Now, the unusual thing is that if you're a really high-income earner, that tax could be lower than the tax that you would face in the trust that you would have for the kids over the years. And speaking of trust, if that's a no-go for you and you at the same time want to have more control over when the kids have access to the money, go see a lawyer who does wills, estates, and trusts 
They can design a trust for you for each child that you will maintain control of the money to an age that you are comfortable with under conditions that are acceptable to you. So you could decide to make the money available at 25, 30, 35, whatever age feels right for you. And I want to tell you this. I cannot tell you, speaking of investing, how many people have come up to me and asked if they should bail out of the stock market right now because of how unsettled things seem to be. Straight ahead, I'm going to address this and give you my best advice, my best call about how we should handle this newly uncertain era. U.S. stock market has had an incredible run since 2009. It is pretty shocking how much values have risen over the last 12 years. And now there are a number of signs showing that our stock markets in the United States and those overseas could be running on fumes. There have been a number of trading sessions with kind of scary drops. And anytime that happens, I start getting a spike in worried questions from people. Is it time to bail? Added on top of that, the Chinese scandal going on with an organization most Americans have never heard of, which is a giant real estate organization. And Krista, I need to ask, have you ever seen these pictures of these developments in China? I, do, I have seen them. And Crazy. you'll see 40 or 50 really tall high-rises that are apartment buildings that have not a soul in them. Yeah. And so they've been building these with borrowed money. A lot of people in China have thought, hey, this is where I should put my savings. I should buy one of these apartments, one of these condos, and hold it. And eventually, that's going to fund my financial security and in retirement. Well, the Chinese communist dictator, dictator Xi, has said, you know, he wants to slow down the real estate spec in the market. And Evergrande, which is the company that's the focus, that has unbelievable levels of debt, perhaps maybe a trillion dollars in debt, um, that the Chinese may let that be an example. And so a lot of people in the United States, a lot of people in Western Europe, have investments indirectly through this organization. And so that plus the current Washington dance going on about the debt limit, which could lead to a default on the U.S. obligations. These things are part of what is starting to be what's referred to as a wall of worry. So it's true. There's things going wrong right now, and we don't know how wrong they're going to get. And so people are like, well, I think I want to get out till it's safe again. The problem every time people do that, where they feel like, wow, I avoided that mess. Every time they do that, the problem is they don't know when to get back in. It is pretty much impossible 
to time the investments you have in your 401k, your Roth IRA, or a regular investment account. So the way I like you to look at it is different. I want you to think about when do you need the money that you have in these things. Money you need in the next few years shouldn't be in the stock market anyway. But money you need for the long haul, that's money that should still be invested as long as it's widely diversified. Because you have to take your lumps over time. Think about the people who may not have been into stock investing back then, but in 2007 during the banking scandals, people bailed out in huge numbers. And the market went down, 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 down for two years. Just a brutal decline. The problem was the people who thought, oh, man, did I dodge that and had their money in savings accounts or CDs or whatever, they waited way too long to get back in. And that's the hard part. So the money you need to live on today and tomorrow should not be invested in the market. If you are already in retirement or you have um, parents or relatives who are, you want to make sure you have a supply of money that will cover your living expenses for a three to five year period. But then after that, having money invested is still a good idea because the big risk of old age is that you outlive your money and then inflation is your enemy. So, yeah, we're due for a tumble. When? I don't know. Is this what causes the tumble, the Chinese or our dysfunctional political system or something else entirely? Who knows? But the reality is I am such a strong believer in capitalism and how the enlightened self-interest of ownership leads to wealth over time that you got to play to win. you got to be in the game. And so that's why all the noise going on, I change nothing. Declines, I change nothing. And if you look at people who've been the world's most successful investors, when everybody else is afraid, that's when they make their huge money. I remember you know, Warren Buffett, a lot of people look at him as out of date and irrelevant and all that, one of the great investors of the entire history of capitalism. In 2007, 8, and 9, he laid the, the groundwork to make a fortune. Bank of America, which at the time was the nation's largest bank, was teetering on insolvency. And they had nobody that would lend them money. So Warren Buffett turned around at a time that everybody had run away and said, who's that? Who's that bank of whatever? And he put money in them that he made a zillion dollars from because he had the guts when everybody else was running away to be involved. It's easy to invest when things go up, 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 and away. It's harder to stay in the game when things get tougher. Krista? This question is from Randy in South Carolina. How would you know if you should use a financial advisor, and how does someone choose one? Well, I'm glad you asked, because hiring a financial advisor 
is a process that really befuddles people. And there's a term you'll hear me use from time to time, and that's a fiduciary. I only want you to use a financial advisor who takes on the role of fiduciary, which means that they're not selling you junk because it lines their pocket. They have to do what's in your best interest first, last, and always. And so you can hire uh, someone who enters into a fiduciary relationship with you many different ways. The most common way people do it is they hire a fee-only financial planner. Historically, they charge 1% fee of the money you have each year for guiding your investments. So they have no incentive to sell you junk because over the years, as the amount of money you have with them goes up, they make more money. The amount of money you have with them goes down, they make less money. So their, in, their incentives are perfectly aligned with your incentives. And I have on Clark.com how to find and choose a financial advisor for different circumstances. And you can read through that and you'll have a sense. Do you want to hire somebody just one-time fee to give you guidance? Do you want to hire somebody to manage your money for you? Or is there something else you want? In addition, the big three discounters all have their own advice services that are cheaper than traditional methods of investing. Schwab, Vanguard, and Fidelity. And then their uh, newer rivals, Betterment and Wealthfront, that all offer techniques that are more about picking the right mix of investments than they are what a financial advisor does, which is to look at your overall picture and do long-term tax planning with you, retirement planning, and death planning, what they call euphemistically estate planning. You know, what happens when you're gone to the people you love that you leave behind. So look through, you'll see what level of depth of help seems appropriate for you, and you should be able to make a good decision from there. And from Kelly in Maryland, a parent of a college student recently wrote in asking about what money transferring app would be best for her daughter and her roommates to use. You responded that using Venmo or Cash App would be her best bet because students don't typically carry big balances in their accounts. I am in a similar situation and my daughter and her four roommates use a terrific free app called Splitwise that keeps track of their shared expenses. They each pay for rent individually, but one roommate signed up for cable, another for internet, another for power, etc. Splitwise divvies up the shared expenses five ways, keeps track of who owes who, and even allows them to link their Venmo accounts to easily pay each other. Love your show. Thank you very much. And I want to tell you that this actually gets very good reviews, Kelly, using Splitwise. And it does just what it says it deals with roommate situations, makes it really easy to keep track of what everybody's paid in. It makes it clear what each person owes each other. It's not. This is not an ad. <laughs> it's not an ad. No. It just works. Yes, it works. And this is from Cody in Pennsylvania. I'm currently 30 days away from international travel to Mexico. My passport has been in process for routine service since July 20th. Two weeks ago, I requested my passport be upgraded to expedited service and want two-day delivery. I have not heard anything back, and I'm worried my passport will not be here in time. Is there anything I can do to further speed up the process? 
Krista, is this time for a therapy session for you? <laughs> for you too. We both went through this. Yeah, well, mine came in time. Krista's did not. And so she had to rebook her trip at a significant additional cost. But you did eventually we get got to, to take go. your trip. Yes. So what I recommend, Cody, is it seems that the passport thing has gotten a little better as a result of a terrible event. And that's the Delta variant that has heavily impacted international travel from the United States. But the fact that you're hearing nothing other than it's saying in process has me very worried. And so what I want you to do, since you've only got a month till you're going, I want you to contact your congressman, his or her constituent service office in the district in Pennsylvania, and they can do what's called a congressional inquiry on your behalf to the U.S. Passport Office. And hopefully that will speed it up. In the worst possible circumstance, if you're getting down to the countdown and you have just days till your trip to Mexico, you may be able to get a local appointment at the closest in-person passport office and be able to walk out same day with the passport. Those usually are available three days out or less before your travel. So the more assertive you are in this process, the more you'll improve the chances that you'll be able to get your passport on time. Now, Krista, you are the best advocate for yourself of like anybody I know <laughs> on earth. I've learned from you. No, no. I mean, you were, you're a tough cookie. <laughs> and you were not able to, you tried every possible tried way. Everything. You were not able to get your passport in time. And so obviously the system has broken down, but I hope for you, Cody, and I want to hear back from you that you were able to get your passport and take your trip to Mexico. Okay, and William wrote in, said, I had an excellent credit score of 800 plus. I relocated in February and recently found out that my credit score had dropped 100 points. I found out that the cable company has sent an amount of $420 to a collection agency. I closed the cable internet account and returned their equipment to an authorized UPS store and received a receipt, which I have. I did the proper change of address with the USPS and I received confirmation. I never got any call or email or postal notice of a collection from this cable company or the collection agency. I disputed the collection with the credit bureau. They replied that an investigation could take six weeks. What else should or can I do to remedy the senseless mistake and on their end and protect my credit score? So, William, full court press required here. This is a common complaint about the cable monopolies, what I call the cable monsters, that they just don't have their act together, and you are someone who obviously pays your bills conscientiously over time. A dispute with the credit bureau will do nothing for you unless at the same time you were very aggressively in contact with the cable monopoly. In addition, you need to get all over social media. Be polite. Be short. And in any way you can be humorous, you want to do that as well about the cable monster. And you name them, you make sure that you were adding them in as at whatever, whichever the format is for each social media. The cable monopolies monitor what people are posting about them on social media thoroughly. In addition, 
file a complaint at betterbusinessbureau.org, bbb.org, and that will get you to an actual um, real office of decision makers at the Cable Monster. It will likely get you some help that you're not going to normally get calling customer no service. But this collection could harm your credit score for a good time to come, good while ahead. And that's why you have got to fight this every possible way. And I absolutely want to hear back from you which strategy got the cable monster to behave because you got to slay that dragon. Not physically, that was a... Even though the cable monsters have been the topic of so many different movies, haven't they? So... Someday, they will not have the monopoly power that they have, and we will all be better off because of it. And I say to you, at any cable monopoly, just remember Blockbuster. (laughs) Remember how they used to treat people? And what happened? Technology came along, and Blockbuster, that had always been so arrogant and treated people so rotten, they got crushed into oblivion. By new technology. And you got to remember that because the cable monopolies have been soft and have been anti-consumer for so long because they didn't face any competition. But that era is just about upon us. And I want to thank you for being with us with this episode of the Clark Howard Show. I hope you enjoyed it and will subscribe wherever you do listen.